and we're off. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 172 of my live chat. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me today on the docket. I'm actually not totally sure what's up on there. I think it's stuff related to what might be happening this weekend, maybe some of the Nevada Commission stuff, right, with the 10-8 and all of their bullshit posturing that people in MMA just eat up because everyone just wants to get along and not really challenge anybody to do a better job, especially those who are in the public space and the public eye and who are public work entities. Everyone just wants to be like, oh, look, they held a seminar. Isn't that good enough? No, I'm an adult. No, I'm an adult. It's not no, holding a fucking seminar on Zoom is actually not enough. That's actually not restorative justice, nor is that really telling me much about what you will do to do a better job other than more Zoom meetings. So no, so no, that's not really jack shit. There's Othello hooking me up with that uh, little thingamajig. We got a thinner wrap this time, a thinner overlay. See if you guys like it. If you like it, let me know if you don't you know, leave a, uh, a message and everything else in between. Also, uh, let me put this a little bit lower. There we go. Also, for everyone who might be interested, you can take the poll right now. So we have all these announcements from UFC 295, UFC 296. Now, are these confirmed fights? I don't know. The UFC will announce fights that aren't confirmed. But let's operate under the assumption that they are confirmed. So two of the big ones, Yuri Prochka returning against Alex Pereira for the vacant light heavyweight title, which would be... That should be all kinds of fun. And then uh, Colby Covington versus Leon Edwards, which is a fight I have close to zero interest in, but it's going to happen, so there's something to react to there. So the question is, which pair do you think is going to win? Yuri Colby, Yuri Leon, Alex Colby, Alex Leon. So there's there's a you can take that vote right now, and we'll get to some of those results, plus some other polls throughout the course of this. Yeah? All right. So we have a lot to get to. There's a bunch of stuff I want to do today. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, and we're done. There, we're done. Um, yes, so reminder to everybody, you can now, uh, we'll do about an hour of free questions, and at the end, if you want to pay to get one in, you can, or you have another option, you can just support the channel more generally, and of course, you can do that by becoming a member. So there's two tiers. One is just sort of the supporter tier, which we really appreciate that, and then the other one is a tier at, I think it's nine ninety nine a month, where, of course, we're going to add more stuff to this, but for now... Um, you can get on the paid portion of the questions for free, right? You can just ask away. Um, yeah, so, or or you can just be here for the free stuff. I'll take whatever you got. I'm just glad you're here. Thank you so much. All right, let me, let me get in a more comfortable position here. There we are. All right. Yes, very good, very good. Okay, that's more comfortable. Um, I want to show one thing before we got started. I asked Othello last week, to remind me to show you guys this and uh let me make sure everything is good to go and he reminded me so now i want to show it to you I, I hope this doesn't affect this video getting pulled or something i really don't think it will but i wanted to show you this because it's more than just about the injuries in jujitsu but jujitsu has a couple of problems one people are just totally dishonest about the kind of injuries you live with doing it if you've ever trained for any long period of time then you know you walk into the gym and half the people in the advanced class are held together with KT tape and knee braces, and they probably shouldn't be there. It was funny. I saw uh, some folks I trained with. I haven't seen them since, like, some of them cases since 2016, 2018. Been a, like, pre-pandemic, I hadn't seen some of these folks. 
And, uh, you know, they've advanced very well. Like, these are great people. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to badmouth their journey. Their journey is what they want it to be. Like, if you feel like you're on a martial arts journey and you're getting a lot out of it, even if it has a lot of injuries, then, you know, you should pursue the best life you can. But, you know, half of them had knee braces on at a house party. Um, one of them had torn his hamstring completely. You know, just all kinds of shit that had hobbled them and affected their quality of life. And it's like, you know, <laughs> these guys are still in their 20s and 30s. It's like, oh, just wait, dude. Just wait. Anyway, here is this Craig Jones video. I'm dying to show you this because it's so fucking funny. So let's see if we can get a look at it here. Uh, I think it's this one. Hold on. Let me let me go to here. There we go. How about this? Folks are asking, did I take this picture at a Pantera concert? Yes, I did. I went and saw Pantera at uh, the Jiffy Lube Pavilion in Bristow, Virginia, because that no one comes to D.C. with metal concerts anymore. And uh, so I had to go to Northern Virginia. It's way the fucking middle of nowhere. Boy, this show was so much better than I thought it was going to be. You know, half the members are dead. I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, it was amazing. If you get a chance to go see them, do it, you know. I had never seen them before, so this was a, uh, a very special treat for your boy. All right, but let's get to this video because... This just makes me happy. Uh, this is Jiu-Jitsu Ruined My Life by Craig Jones. Here we go. Right. And there's no sound. Oh, there's no sound on this fucking thing? Oh, fuck. All right. We'll have to come back to it. God damn it. All right. Well, there's that. We'll have to come back to it. Fucking hell. What are you going to do? Good Lord. I, I, had my, I had sound coming through on mine. What am I missing? Othello, is there sound coming through on that? We'll, we'll circle back to it if there was. We'll circle back to it. All right. For the time being, we'll get to the questions. Here we go. We'll go for an hour on the free ones, and then we'll circle back to this one if we have a chance to get to it. All right. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for waiting. First things first. Let's go to this one. Luke, have you ever experienced confusion around whether your work colleagues are actually your friends or not? What comes first, business or being a bro? How have you dealt with the disappointments when your friendly vibe wasn't reciprocal? I mean, I don't know if I've been guilty too often of having a friendly vibe. Have you experienced confusion around with your work colleagues? No, I don't really. Uh, I'm not trying to be too buddy-buddy. I mean, I try to be friendly with people in the industry in the sense that we all have kind of work here. And, um, you know, some rules of decorum are probably better than others. But in general... No, I don't have a lot of like friends in the way you're describing in the industry. Um, you know, Brian, I would consider a friend. There's a couple of other ones, you know, they're, they're, they do exist. But like, as a general rule, I'd rather be friendly than I, I just don't have the ability to maintain a lot of friendships through MMA, like in terms of just being there to nurture them. And because I'm not on the road that often with it. And then more to the point, um, it just I don't. Yeah, I mean, people who are, it's the road warriors, right? The people who are constantly in contact with everybody else all the time, weekend after weekend, where these equations come into play. But I don't really care if the people like me so much as they just treat me fairly and, you know, give my work a fair shake, and then that's it. Other than that, I don't, it's, I'm cool with whatever they decide. I, I don't try to, I don't have a lot of competing feelings of, are they my friend or ally, da 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 da, da like, um, I let I try to do the best work that I can and then let the chips fall where they may to be perfectly honest. If they like it great if they don't uh, okay, you know. I mean, I don't know if that sounds harsh or weird, but that's sort of where I'm at on this. All right, here we go. 
Second question. Luke, I've heard you and BC talk about how restrictive and the negative effects from UFC Monopoly can be on fighters and how if other promotions achieve equal market value, it'd be better for the fighters' financials. I agree with what you're saying on this, but do you think it'd be worse for the fans and the pay-per-view model? Um, potentially, yes. In this day and age where illegal streaming is becoming more popular and the prices of pay-per-view are increasing, how can the average everyday 9-to-5 workers afford to pay multiple pay-per-views a weekend? They cannot. Let's say UFC loses majority of top-level fighters and they're evenly distributed across multiple promotions. Uh, okay, that still wouldn't happen, but I don't think, but okay. This assumingly would result in multiple big pay-per-view and events from different promotions clashing on a regular basis. For example, if the UFC had a pay-per-view on with Oliveira and Islam, but then the PFL had Francis and Aspinall, and one had Izzy and Drickus, how could the average fan afford to watch this without illegal streaming? They probably couldn't afford to watch all of it. Could the pay-per-view model survive yes also if they scrapped pay-per-views and exclusively switched to streaming options e.g espn fight pass with monthly subscription how could anyone afford that too they barely can do that now uh much less before guys you're gonna have a hard time convincing me that competition is gonna make it worse for fans now you have to be realistic um in one sense right so for example in boxing at times in order for promotions to afford certain kinds of talents or fights They'll put them on pay-per-view knowing it won't make much, but they probably make a little bit more. Uh, they'll lose a little bit less, let's say, doing that than if they were to do it on network TV or some other kind of normal television distribution. You'll see that a lot. And then the promoter just ends up taking a bit of a bath on it because many people don't want to pay for the promotion. I suspect in cases like that, yeah, illegal streaming will become uh, a pretty big deal. Sure. Uh, and also, you know, we shouldn't hype up what could happen as some kind of, you know, panacea for all fight fans. I think you'd get some fights that wouldn't ordinarily get made. Like, again, there's absolutely nothing stopping Francis versus John from being made other than the UFC just simply refuses to deal with any other promoter. That is literally the only thing preventing it. Uh, in cases where that's in play, you might get fights otherwise and you wouldn't have gotten, but there might be some other ways in which you see it in boxing the same way where one promoter works with one network and so getting some of that crossover can happen, but it can also be pretty difficult, right? It's really up to the fighter themselves to push the issue and get what they want. You will get some of that um, as well, but in general, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to have a very hard time being convinced that promoters having to challenge one another by offering the best product they can and assembling the best roster that they can I'm going to I'm going to assume that that is going to pay at least some kind of dividends forward in the market beyond to just the fighters themselves. You will get imperfect results. You will get uneven results. You absolutely will get cases that will be piracy enhanced. I, I, there's just simply no denying that, nor am I trying to do as much. That's not what I'm interested in saying. However, um, simply this is this is always the argument for any kind of monopoly by the people who are sympathetic to the monopoly. The monopoly's exer exertion of their firm over the market, which is it's simpler. It's simpler, right? Everything, quite literally, not everything, but most things are basically under one umbrella, and that creates a degree of comfort for the customer, a degree of familiarity, a degree of ease and frictionless use that they might enjoy. That is true, but the problem is over time, these monopolies become sclerotic, and then um, the product itself doesn't really become better. They just become better at financially extracting wealth from the situation. I think we are very much in a situation like that now. So um, will it always be a win for you? Nope. Uh, will it always make better fights? Absolutely not. I don't think that's the case. I'm not arguing for mechanisms to resolve fighter pay that I think will also make the fans happy in all cases. It's not, 
That's not the argument for fighter pay. The argument for fighter pay, if you believe it, and that some people don't, but if you believe it, the argument is that is a thing that needs to be done to make the industry more equitable to them. Whether it has spillover benefits for the consumer is certainly a matter of debate and uneven. And again, yes, in certain situations, no, in plenty of others. And some people are going to like that arrangement and some aren't. But you're not trying to solve for fan. You don't want to drive the fans away, certainly, but you're not really like the direct aim of trying to fix fighter pay is not to also, you know, soothe the worries of fans. It's to make fighter pay better, right? You have to be interested in someone else's economic condition, not so much before your own. Your your disposable income matters, but if you're trying to solve that problem, that's what you're trying to solve. And and I'm being honest about that. So some people are like, well, if that's the case, then I don't really want to change the industry. And you know, I don't necessarily agree with that viewpoint, but I can understand why folks might have some reservations about it. I'm not. De- people want to declare this like it'll be better for everybody. That's very debatable. It's very debatable, but I think it would be better for fighter pay. So what do we do about that? All right. Let's go to the next one. Let's see what we got. Uh, Let's go to this one. Oops. I don't want to get in the way. Right here. Luke, I've seen quite a lot of talk since the Izzy loss that if Habib stuck around, he'd eventually lost, which I agree with. This game is impossible to be flawless. Blah, blah, blah. Makes me wonder... Is getting out early the best way to seal your legacy, or should we give more credit and even leeway to someone like Valentina, Izzy, or Silva, who kept going and eventually lost? Seems to be a general consensus from the average MMA fans that they've hurt their legacy from what I've seen online. So uh, knowing when to exit is critically important. Critically important. The guys I've seen get it the most right were probably Habib was one of them. I thought DC stuck around a little bit too long, but not like calamitously so, but a little bit too long. Um, George St. Pierre, I thought played it about as well as you're ever going to see somebody play it. He did a fantastic job. BJ Penn did the, one of the worst jobs I've ever seen. You know, one of the absolute just disaster to his legacy, unfortunately. So the issue for me is this, I don't think it's the early exit, um, in the sense that like, oh, they could have still won fights and we didn't get them. The question is, did they fight enough of the right people? St. Pierre, to my, to my mind, unquestionably fought enough of the right people to earn all-time status. Um, he also, once he realized that that ship was going to, well, that, that ship was going to dock or whatever metaphor we'd like to use, then he got out, took a break, came back and found a very, you know, uh, great opportunity to go up a weight class, get a second belt against a, a challenger he perceived he could beat. He was right. He did. And then he bowed out immediately. Like, he played that about as well as you're ever going to see someone do that. So what you have to look at is not so much early exit versus not. Could they have kept winning versus not? The question is, with the time that they had, how many elite guys did they beat? What kind of streak did they go on? What kind of measurable dominance did they show us in that time? The knock on Habib, when people say he got out early, it's like early relative to what? Well, he could have stuck around and fought some of the other guys of his generation that he never really got around to. He could have still been around and fought you know, whoever uh, from the up-and-coming or anybody else, he just, you know, I know he fought Dustin, he fought Gaethje, um, he fought Connor, obviously, but he could have stuck around and fought some more names, maybe gone to 170. Uh, he got out in the sense that he didn't fight as many of those elite names during his reign on top as someone like St. Pierre did, or someone like Anderson Silva did, although now you're getting into a question of how good was 155 versus 185, but certainly the streak that Anderson went on was pretty unique and pretty special. So 
um, GSP and Habib both got out early, but or got out before it was too late. The argument for Habib is, or I should say against him rather, pardon me, is that he didn't fight quite as many of the best guys as he should have before he bowed out. It was a little bit too early. But, you know, when he is in his 50s and 60s, and I'm going to assume still has his mental faculties because he didn't take a lot of damage in his career, probably not too much damage in training, and, you know, basically was able to keep his cognitive health intact later on that will age quite well, you know, versus some of these other people. But you can make an argument for Habib that his dominance was extraordinary but short-lived. St. Pierre's went a little bit longer, and I think for that reason, he occupies in my mind in terms of like what they were able to do before timing and exit. St. Pierre pushed it right up to the line. Habib pushed it like with a lot of room left before that, you know. But again, he had his own calculus about why he wanted to get out. He had his own calculus about why he was done with this. He had his own calculus about what was important to him and what wasn't. So, you know. By the way, this whole idea like Habib would have lost if he stuck around. Folks, that's a guarantee. <laughs> that's a guarantee. Now, the question is how long would that have to be before he would have lost? And that can be a matter of debate. But, I mean, you know, you stick around to your 40, let's say, for example, 155, it's going to go badly for you. Like, it's a guarantee he would have lost. It's just how long would that have taken before we got there? I don't know the answer to that, obviously. All right. Here we go. Uh, here is it. By the way, this gentleman, a member. How about that? Thank you to him. This is Josh Sinnott. I don't know how you say that. All right. Look, in the interview with Eric Nixick, he recommended watching a series of fights of Eugene Behrman coached fights to appreciate the rise of his coaching prowess. Would you ever do a breakdown like this for your channel? Something like this. Something like get to know this MMA coach in five fights, highlighting common influence across fighters. They coach. Yeah, I could do something like that only with the participation of the coach. It would be too many details. There'd be some things you could pick up across styles, but a lot of these fighters are very different. They have very different identities. There's some stuff that they pick up, but they pick it up in uneven ways, even in a gym that might emphasize a series of qualities or practices the, way, the same way. But I could do it if I had their, like, um, not their permission, but like their participation in telling that story. I would need to sit down with them to do an accurate job, I think. Uh, I don't know if I could do it without that. All right. Luke, I know you have been asked this a lot recently, but um, for it hits home, for me it hits home, I think you meant to write. My father passed away a few days ago. Jesus. And you mentioned some things to do and not do. Drinking possibly being number one. Anything else in hindsight you would do differently? Thanks for the content and perspective. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jesus Christ, man. I'm really sorry to hear that. That is... Um, that is uniquely terrible. That is terrible. I don't know what the circumstances are. It's not my circumstances or position to know. It's the same answer I give everybody. Um, you know, don't do what I did, which is drink all the time. It's a real bad idea. It's probably going to go real bad for you if you do that. So don't do that. And, um, the most important thing aside from staying away from drugs and alcohol as best you possibly can, which I don't know if that, you know, expecting zero tolerance from that's a great idea. But the number one thing that it really has mattered over time is you have to have, um, and this will be very difficult. <clears throat> Sorry, this will be very difficult. You have to live the most 
um, not ordinary as in basic, but the most routine life that you can. You should wake up at the same time. You should make sure that, you know, not like you have to keep to some kind of military order, but you should have routine. You should have structure. You should follow that structure. You should take care of yourself. You should invest in mental health. You should invest in your physical health. Again, you should stay away from drugs and alcohol. You should stay with anything, whether it's, you know, I'm not religious, but if a church provides community for you and social interaction and fosters some kind of nurturing environment, some kind of socially nurturing environment, you should pursue all of those things, all of them. Anything that, anything that fosters community, anything that fosters connection, anything that fosters structure, routine, um, health, the, anything in that vein, whatever those individual things might be in your life, those have to be for you. But if you get into drugs and alcohol, it will go poorly. Um, if you get into, you know, uh, other kinds of vices, it will go poorly. If you withdraw, it will go poorly. Like it's just, it's just a matter of time. Aside from any of the health effects that drinking did to me all those many years, the really the big thing that I got out of it, and I've said this before, the real big thing I got out of it was nothing. It just bought me time on the shot clock. That's it. It didn't do shit for me. It didn't heal anything. Like it numbs it out, obviously, but eventually you get to a point where you're sick of drinking. You're sick of living like this. At least that's what I have. What happened to me. And you might have had a couple of scares along the way about what the drinking was doing to you and had done to you. Uh, and then you get to a place where you're like, I'm still dealing with the exact same shit I was before. It doesn't do anything. It literally doesn't do anything to meaningfully address anything you're feeling. Like you, you, you can drink the bottle and then you're like, oh, I don't feel quite the same way or I can move past it. And I understand, but that exercise will come to an end. We'll call it either a tragic end or you'll be able to say, I can't do this anymore. And you're still in the exact same place. And then what have you done? What have you done? I, I'm, I'm not telling you this based on guesswork. I'm telling you this because I, I, I did it. I did it. I tried it. I, I remember I was living in New York City at the time. I remember my mom died and we had to go to Georgia for all of her affairs. She was living in Atlanta at the time. And then we went back to... Uh, I went back to New York to resume my work and everything. And uh, I remember the first night I got back, I went out in the East Village. And um, <laughs> I was ordering pitchers by the beer and then just drinking it straight from the pitcher. Just like that. And I must have gone through like three or four of them. Something absurd. I remember it was an absurd amount. Waking up hungover every single day. You know, every single day for work. Um, it was... Uh, I was hungover for work for years, years. So it just doesn't, it doesn't take you any place. It doesn't take, except the best case scenario is the exact same place you are today. Um, don't do it. Don't do it. It's a false promise. You have to live healthy. You have to make healthy choices. You have to make choices that foster productive, healthy lifestyles. And if that sounds like, a little bit bro hustle culture stuff. I don't know what to tell you about the optics of the recommendations I'm giving you other than I could say that the results, those are the only things I have found that work. And of course, speaking with a mental health professional or some other kind of person who is capable of giving you genuinely valuable psychiatric or otherwise, you know, uh, helpful advice, right? Some, somebody who's really grounded in these matters who can really walk you through it. You should, you should dot, you should not, 
if you've had a parent or a loved one die on you recently, the last thing you should be trying to do is just walk that alone. You might be able to do it. I'm not saying you couldn't do it. Some of you might be significantly stronger than I ever was. Fair enough. But the data on that one is also pretty clear. Like communal effort is what will shepherd you to a place where you can be happy again or just live, you know, do not fucking drink. Don't do it. It's so fucking bad for you, man. I've never told this story. I'll tell you a story. It was in this room. It was in this room. I will tell you a story. I've actually never told the public this. You want to know how bad it got with the drinking? A few times it got bad. Now, I don't have any memory about what I'm about to tell you. So I can only tell you what my friends told me. You can't see it here, but my door is to my left. This used to be my bedroom when I was single. All right. So this is a long time ago. So this must have been. So my mom died in 03. I moved here December 04. And uh, this must have been 06, 07. So we're talking four years after my mom died, still drinking like a motherfucker, right? Um, yeah, this must have been like 06, 07, something like that. And uh, I woke up the next morning, uh, you know, worst taste of my mouth, incredible hangover, and my door was busted. And not only was the door busted, but the door jam and frame was ripped off the wall. And I was like, oh, my God, did I have some kind of rage last night? I didn't feel, I mean, I had a headache, but I didn't feel all that bad. No, no, that wasn't what happened. My friends told me, and these, these are, guys are still my friends. My friends had told me um, that we were all hanging out. Don't remember it. Don't remember it at all. And uh, they lost track of me. We were in the house, I guess, hanging out. And um, they heard me gurgling inside my bed. And so they busted the door down, and sure enough, I guess I had vomited, and I was gurgling on it. I was, I could have been dead. I was that that close, like that close. You know what I mean? I was. I, I guess it maybe they, what they told me was even if they hadn't intervened, you know, they couldn't say exactly what was going to happen. But they said it was like they, the way they were looking at me was like, dude, you need help. You know what I mean? It was that kind of a look, and like none of that shit does anything to get you to a better place, but it will take you there. It will take you there. So if you want to walk down the stupid path and you know, people are weak when moments of difficulty in an understandable way, but you're asking for advice on what to do. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't have your friends have to burst down the door because you were gurgling on your own vomit. Right. Don't, don't do that. That's how bonds. I mean, that's how, wasn't that how bond Scott died? Uh, the, the, the original lead singer of ACDC, didn't he choke on his own vomit? Like that shit's real, man. It can happen. So got, came pretty close to me. I, I would have been 27, 28, something like that, 26, 27, something like that. Can you imagine that? You know? So trust me when I tell you folks, it ain't, a, it, it's a path to nothingness, to nothingness. I'm not talking about social drinking. I'm not talking about people having, you know, enjoying a beer on Fridays. Any kind of responsible use, use all the drugs you want. I don't care. But that's, of course, what I'm describing to you is in no way uh, responsible. And more to that point, look at how long the window is. It just goes year after year after year. You can just slow motion drive your life off a cliff. People think it can be automatic and sudden. That can happen. Or you can do what I did which is just tack on year after year after year after year of drinking and see what it gets you. It gets you fucking nothing. Nothing. So don't do that. I've actually never told that story before, so there you go. I don't have anything to hide anymore, you know.
I mean, I'm not proud of it, but um, it happened. It fucking happened. All right. Here we go. Whoops, went a little far. There we go. Uh, here we go, like this. How did you enjoy the Pantera show? I liked it a lot. What did you think of the job Zach and Charlie did? This would be the uh, Zach Wilde. I forget Charlie's last name, the drummer. Pantera's my favorite band. I saw them back in the 90s, and I was pumped to hear the songs play live again. I went to the Dallas show with Metallica. I left before Metallica. God damn. Then saw Pantera headline with Lamb of God in San Diego, and it was amazing. Yeah, so they were playing with Lamb of God and some other band. I missed the first band. I apologize to that band. Lamb of God was cool. They're from Richmond, but it wasn't. It was a cool show. I'm not going to talk shit about it. it, was, it was, I like Lamb of God, but it wasn't. It was. I could have taken it or leaving it. That Pantera show was absurd. It was absurd. I could not believe how good it was. Man, some of these bands from the '90s that have been playing for a long time, like they have mastered the live performance of their songs. I saw Rage not too long ago. I, I couldn't believe how good that was. But it's it's a very similar crowd. It's Dad in his 40s, you know, night out. A lot of beer bellies and gray hairs and long beards and shaved heads and black shirts. I mean, I'm the demo. I'm the fucking demo. I mean, I don't drink, but, you know, I'm the demo. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing. I'll tell you the other part, too. I was like, you know, because I've got mixed feelings about Phil. I know he's apologized for the Heil Hitler bullshit he pulled back when or how long? Was that 2017? And has said, you know, he's gone on the record about, what you know, his drinking problems and everything at the time. So I had mixed feelings about the whole thing. Uh, I only saw, if you can believe this, and in the 90s, this would have been impossible to believe. I only saw one, and this was in Virginia. I only saw one Confederate flag. I thought there was going to be a bunch. I saw one the whole time I was there. I was like, wow. You know, that's uh, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive that Pantera fans aren't rocking the the stars and bars anymore, really. Except for one, it was one dude and I saw the whole place. I mean, there may have been more, but, you know, I, I legitimately just didn't. I, that was the, I saw one dude with it, so thought that was pretty impressive. The, the last thing I'd say on this, because I don't want to bore people who don't care about Pantera concerts, um, the only the only thing that got me, there's a couple of songs they didn't play that I wish they would have. They didn't play uh, By Demons Be Driven, which was like so disappointing they didn't play that. Um, they didn't play Cemetery Gates. They played Cemetery Gates as like a video package with like a pre. It was like the original recording. So they didn't do a live version of Cemetery Gates, which is like Cemetery Gates and By Demons Be Driven were two of the ones that I really wanted to hear. But you get what you get. So all right, let's get back to it. Um. Luke, you've talked about the advancement in boxing technique in MMA, but one fundamental aspect I think could use more refinement is the ability to shift one's weight from the back to the front foot. Shifting your weight to, uh, to the back foot is used most commonly before employing more evasive footwork, and shifting weight to the front foot adds additional power through momentum. Boxers like Canelo and Nassim Hamed are examples of this. I feel like if more fighters, particularly in the lower weight class, use this more frequently, there would be more knockout threats. Mm -hmm. Do you think some MMA fighters might use this approach in the future or not? Let me ask, reread this one more time. To shift one's weight from the back foot to the front foot, shifting your weight from the back foot to the front is more most commonly used before employing more evasive footwork. And shifting weight to the front foot adds additional power through momentum. So you got to be careful with that. First of all, you're going to have to pivot off the front foot if you're going to pivot at all. So if you go bop, bop, and then you roll, and then you pivot out, you have to pivot on the front foot, not the back foot. So, so there can be issues where that's really not the case. The other problem is, so for example, yesterday in 
Jersey City, I recorded a Canelo Charlo scouting report that's going to be out next week. Um, I don't know how good it is because yeah, I tried to do things a little bit differently. I don't know how that came out. There's some hair out there. But one thing I noticed in the tape in Charlo is Charlo sometimes will step with the jab like he, like any other boxer, but a lot of times he just goes and then just reaches with the jab. He doesn't step with it. But what he'll do is, and I noticed it because it kept changing his elevation, he would come up like this, right, on the jab. He kept his, his head elevation kept rising when he was doing it. It's because he's coming up on the front foot to get a little bit extra of that reach. You see what I mean? Guys, the consequences of doing that in MMA are not so severe. Uh, and again, it's all a matter of degree. I don't think this person is talking about that. I think they're talking about the natural balance when you're like 70-30 on the back to the front and then shifting a, some of some of that proportion to get the most as you, you, know, you whip the punch out in front of you, which they would be very correct. But I'm saying it's a matter of degree and feel and difficulty. Um, and so what I've seen a few times, even very good boxers, they'll come up on that front foot and their elevation will rise. Dude, if you do that in boxing, the consequences are much worse. Much worse. It, for two reasons. One, the pinpoint accuracy of striking in MMA is behind boxing. That's one thing I would say. The other problem is that for uh, boxers is that in MMA, you stand much further apart. So cheating that distance in any kind of way, you have to be careful with doing it. But you'll see a lot of people try a series of different methods to get that. In boxing, dude, if you are too far forward with your weight on your front foot, they will fucking set you on fire. Like, especially a good fighter. They will just, you cannot, you cannot get away with that for very long. Um, so, I, again, if you're talking about that natural, we'll go 70-30 and then we'll shift some of that to the front through the act of the mechanics of punching to get the most out of it, yes, can be very, very beneficial, especially in MMA where you're long range you're trying to find whatever you can to cheat that distance, but even then, you want to you want to move into position with your feet, not with your you know not with the the balance of your reach like that. You don't want to do that. Um, and I, I just don't think if you MMA fans don't really like boxing. Some people give it lip service; they like the occasional bow, but in general, they don't really like it, and that's fine. But when you watch enough of it, you begin to realize that some of these really smaller I, I say it all the time some of these smaller details about uh, head position, weight distribution, cadence of stepping, all that stuff. All of it is so much more dangerous against a high-level fighter there. So much more dangerous. In MMA, it's a little bit more today anyway. Now, this is changing rapidly. And again, there can be certain fights where this is absolutely very much in play as well. Um, but you have to be careful about certain mechanics of movement and positioning and balance. A little bit more so in boxing, but... It, in MMA, too, it's becoming more of a thing. It's just right now not as big of a deal. Look, with all of the big boxing fights that have happened recently, I've learned to appreciate just how big the gap is between boxing punches versus MMA. However, are there any boxers that can learn from MMA? Is there anything that uh, boxers can learn from MMA striking? Um, you know what? I will say a little bit. Um, I don't think you need to do stance switching in boxing, you'll see guys like Jerron Ennis get away, not get away with it, succeed quite well at it. Um, there can be other ones too, but I think that MMA have you have to come up with a lot of creative solutions for distance closing and to set up your offense. You need these creative, vast possibilities, right? And, and again, to go back to it, the Nixick guys are really um, great examples of this. Um, you know, with their stance switching and using that to change angles and then throwing this punch in the direction so they can get movement to that one and then switching back. They've got these creative, like, 
before Tukey gets here. Hang on. There we go. Lock the door. Because, I mean, you know what time it is when she gets home. So, I, I'm not prescribing stance switching per se, but what I'm saying is for two fighters who are further apart and then using stance switching both to enter, to exit, um, and then putting these weird different combinations of what strikes to throw, what feints, what decoys, some of those things, I think, it's interesting to me, right? Like, if you look at who switches stances in boxing today, it's much more commonly of the younger guys, 30 and below, than it is 30 and above. And to me, like, I don't know if that's an MMA influence or just what young guys in boxing are doing. I have no clue. But they just, at a bare minimum, seem to be more accepting and interested in these kinds of acts, uh, these kinds of ideas. And again, guys like Jerron Ennis, if you've never seen him, he's very good at both stances, like legitimately offense and defense, good at both stances. So um, if the idea is how do we navigate certain kinds of distances better, I think there might be something to be taken from that. And there could be other things in the future, right? Um, some of the ways in which they hold their hands for guard or different kinds of guard manipulation, but even then having full hands versus, you know, just a glove is not going to be nearly as valuable. But right now I would say negotiating distance with creativity is something that I think potentially could be borrowed. But even then I would, you know, they're just different sports. They have different needs they are trying to problem solve around different realities. Um, yeah. You can probably hear the Tukester. Look, I know it's probably not going to happen next, but how do you see a fight between Strickland and Drickus going? They asked this, I think, last week or maybe two weeks ago on the live chat. It's a fucking great question, man. And by the way, based on some of the things Izzy said, you guys see his video that he put out? Based on some of the things he said there, um, it, you, I'm inferring this. I don't know exactly what he means, but it sounded to me like he's saying... Uh, I want next when I come back, but I, it didn't necessarily sound like he's getting, he wants like next, like immediate rematch. And again, I don't think there's a case for an immediate rematch. I don't think he has to go too far back in the queue, uh, but you know, an immediate rematch. No. So um, it's the same thing. It's like, is it Drickus is a lot less precise, I think than Izzy, but he's, I think this version of him might even, you know, again, relative to Sean, uh, might be more dangerous. He's certainly going to hit with a ton of bricks. He's going to take more chances. He's going to mix it up in the wrestling. He's going to put a pace on him. Um, I think he's going to try and push Sean back. To be honest with you, rather than accepting that fight, I don't think. I don't think. You know, unless he gets tired and it's not working. But I'll, so I'll say this: early on, I think he's going to be trying to walk down Sean. I really believe that. I think he's going to be trying to walk him down. And you know, to what extent he'll have success, I don't know, but. I firmly believe you're going to try and see something like that. So he's going to try and physically, he's going to do the same thing he always does. Guys, that guard pass he used on Robert, the Sao Paulo pass, that is the kind of pass you use when you're a big, strong guy and you're trying to physically like contort a person to make them give you the guard pass. This is not tricking them, you know, and their body by getting dominant angles from mobile passing where you're like, you know, it's Toriando passing, you know, hot, hot, you know, and you're going the other way or something. That's not what this is. You're just, you're just crunching a guy up like a fucking cannon of vice and you're making them give you the pass. That's what that is. You know, that he, that, that is to me so representative of his game. So representative of his game. It's a little bit unusual. Not that it's, um, not that it's not technical. It's, it's, it's very technical. Unusual in the sense you don't see it a lot. You don't see it a lot. 
and it's just hard-nosed in your face make you suffer guard passing that's i think that's his whole style of fighting to be honest in your face hard-nosed make you suffer uh the thing is he just leaves more openings but he might be more dangerous with what he risks he's willing to take i think it's a tough matchup for sean i mean listen dude sean's the fucking champion right whoever he fights i know it's middleweight i know it's middleweight but whoever he fights is going to be a tough fucking guy right welcome to being a champion like this ain't abus magomedov my guy that's not who this is you know he's a good fighter too but he ain't drickus and i you know i I, I had to learn about Drickus the hard way. Let's be honest about that too. But okay, lesson learned. Lesson learned. Dude, he's hard-nosed. Hard-nosed, man. Um, and, you know, full of confidence too, dude. He's coming off stopping Robert Whitaker for fuck's sake. So Izzy's going to, I mean, excuse me, Sean's going to be coming in with confidence as well, having beaten um, um, Izzy. But still... So I, I haven't looked at some of the specifics of how they might match up. I haven't looked at some of the very intricate details of the particular style of parrying and everything else and how that goes against some of the more common weapons that Drickus uses. Uh, I think because Drickus, uh, the only fight I really sat down and really watched was the Whitaker fight. And again, I went back to that one. They had a game plan in that fight that was very specific to Whitaker. So based on that, I would expect him to have a specific game plan for Sean related to his particular strengths and based off what he showed defensively last time sean i'm gonna guess i'm gonna guess that a big part of that is gonna be uh taking him down ground and pound getting right in his face backing him up just denying that process that sean does before it ever gets started back to the questions do you think one of the main reasons for fan turnover is because it's the only sport that involves a lot of subjectivity? In every other sport, schedules are automated and playoffs are based on results. In the UFC and in boxing to a degree, it's based on marketability and how much Dana likes you, in this particular case, Colby. I get sick of it a lot because there's no consistency. Auto rematches, who gets title shots. Do you think it would benefit from more rigid protocols of who gets title shots, auto rematches, similar to mandatories? I don't think it's untrue that, excuse me, let me say this again. I don't believe that boxing's architecture is in always bad. Like there's nothing redeeming about it. There are a lot of problems with it. And I'm not going to tell you that it's fights like Canelo versus John Ryder that are keeping fans around. No, I don't think that's the case. Or that there's four belts, that's what people love, and there's different sanctioning bodies. Like, there's all kinds of problems with it. There might be something to be said for some of the architecture creating, um, you know, who was the guy, Jack Catterall, who beat or was should have beaten Josh Taylor. He was a mandatory. He got that fight because he was a mandatory. Like, that's a good thing. He got screwed by the judges, but, you know, we got plenty of that in MMA too. So, in that sense... Um, I think it has some net benefit, some benefits in certain areas. I don't really think that's the reason. I, I tend to believe what really gets people with MMA is they it's the way in which like it does something to them, right? MMA fandom is very unique and it's very it's very interesting. People who have um, people who have never in, think about the first time you saw MMA. 
And if you're a little bit older, this is different, but newer fans, you saw, I don't know, John Jones, you saw Habib, you saw Connor, whoever it was. And like when you watch and you finally learn, I hate to borrow the term red pill, but you know, something like that, when it finally hits you and you understand at least a little bit, just a little bit of this like spectacular car crash yet beautiful violence, it grabs you and pulls you close. And it does something to your soul a little bit. You're like, oh my fucking God, where has this been all my life? I know so many people who are like that. So many people who are like, when they see MMA, maybe not the very first time, but the first time they have that connection to it where they're like, oh my God, this is so special. This is so unique. You come at it. Once you hit that, you, you your heart begins to race. You want to consume everything. And then what ends up happening is they that love affair ends up creating eventual burnout. That you you want to catch everything and you try to catch everything and you can for a while, um, and then you you try to do that and then eventually you'd be like you begin to cut corners because it's too much. Your life moves on, and you just go on and kind of just fades out. Also, a lot of people like they they get a love affair with MMA in their teens or twenties. Again, you may be watching like oh I discovered it at thirty five. Fair enough. But a lot of people discover it in their teens and 20s when they're single, when they have more free time, when they can really, you know, make their life about their hobbies or interests. And then when they get to 30 and they start having kids and they have to focus on more and they have less free time, there just becomes this aging out process. I've been able to avoid that by, by virtue of my occupation. But I can see how this would be a challenge for other people. So it's this like love affair, which creates this insatiable appetite and then that insatiable appetite creates burnout along with life changes fostering this like, you know, thing. I don't, I don't know why boxing doesn't suffer from it in the same way. I think people warm up to boxing a little bit more slowly. Boxing also follows a lot of family and cultural traditions. And then those kind of seem to be the things that safeguard it. Whereas MMA seems to be this one-on-one -on -one relationship that you have with the sport, right? You fell in love with it. It wasn't like... Some people will be like, oh, my dad showed it to me. That's true. But MMA seems to have a little bit more of that uh, religious experience. You know, you had this like religious awakening. Uh, but the problem is that ends up, that one-on-one -on -one relationship you have, that, that you create fatigue for yourself. And then life takes you in a different direction. And all of a sudden, it goes. Boxing seems to be like just something that people make part of their families, make part of their traditions, make part of their, I don't know. It just seems to be, it just seems to have more staying power, but also, you know, um, it doesn't, boxing grabs some people like that, but MMA is weird. And, and, and in certain ways, it's cool. You, that people like MMA just like, bow, dude, it just completely grabs you by the shoulders and shakes you into this awaked state of like, I have to see, I have to see this every day. And this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I have to spend my Saturdays doing this, you know. Um, boxing seems to be boxing seems to have a little bit more of the let you come and go thing. I don't quite have a great answer, but I do feel like having seen people's <clears throat> religious conversion experiences that they have with MMA, it's it's unique. It's unique. It but it ultimately sets up turnover, I think. Um, 
da, 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 scoring system. Look, with all the controversy over scoring this year, are there any real ways to make the situation better? I mean, we've been over this one a million times. Or are MMA fans relegated to just hoping the judges don't ruin a fight? Listen, the wheels of justice grind slowly on this one, okay? I do believe that over the very, very, very long term that some public pressure actually matters. I do believe that. The reason why I say that is because even for uh, the Nevada Commission, which is just truly one of the least impressive in my mind in terms of what they're actually willing to do, they, this week, yesterday in fact, had this seminar. Now, here I am praising it. I started out criticizing it. I need to give, there is some praise that it is owed. There's plenty of criticism too. So let me give it the praise that it is owed. They finally relented and invited select media members. I can tell you they didn't invite me, but of course that's no surprise. They invited Aaron Bronstetter. I'm not sure who else. I think Mark Ramundi, perhaps some other folks, to sit in on this call where they went over 10-8 rounds from the uh, weekend and then everyone weighed in on whether or not the judges who were present weighed in on whether or not the fifth round of Shevchenko and Grasso was a 10-8 round, round. And of course, no one thought that. And then you had the commissioner, Mullen, um, speaking to ESPN, I believe, or making a statement on the call saying, you know, Mike Bell's a great judge, which is true, um, but I disagree with the 10-8. It's like, okay, so this is their kabuki theater that they went through to let us know that they think that the 10-8 round was a mistake. Inviting the media there, I think, has only happened because there's been like relentless onslaught um, to get them to be more transparent. And again, it's not a loose, it's not a lose-lose scenario where more transparency equals more criticism, nor is it a case where more transparency just automatically equals less, but rather like there's a there's a duty as a public server. These are publicly funded entities. They are they naturally owe some level of transparency. And I think that they realize that or they feel certain pressure to do that, or you know, I'm not sure who is getting in their ear to do it. So, you know. It's not even remotely enough. It's like, okay, but like what restorative justice are you going to then undertake? Because if you really believe your guy got it wrong, I mean, there's no formal process to act on this because the only way to challenge any rule that they have is if they made a mathematical error, you can prove um, there was corruption of some kind or what's the third category? It's like mathematical error, corruption, or like you can clearly identify that some rule was broken. Short of that, it's just discretion. So they've 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 still they don't give any options to fighters to challenge incompetent or otherwise bad judging. They don't give any um, real methodology for them to challenge uh, what referees do. It's like the fighters aren't the ones challenging the referees. It's other referees who are ringside trying to double check, and that's valuable. But it's not the same thing as like restorative justice here, like the, to the extent that any of that is even possible. So this is a long way of saying. Long-term public pressure, media-driven public pressure, can yield some results. It's not altogether worthless, but you have to have a very long view of it. I mean, I remember the, the Athletic Commission in Nevada when they were run by Keith Kaiser. Who remembers Keith Kaiser? Show of hands on the Keith Kaiser remember guys. You know, Keith Kaiser didn't, I mean, he didn't give a fuck about your opinion. Let me tell you that very clearly. And more to the point, it's 2023 and as long as I've been covering MMA and watching MMA, I cannot recall the commission in Nevada ever having media members on a call 
like this one where they went over results with other judges, had the kind of this learning experience. Dude, California has been inviting me to those calls, and I've gone on a couple of them for years. Not just did California invite me. California invited me and then let me participate, and but not let me, encouraged me to participate on the calls with my ideas. Dude, that was happening before the fucking pandemic. This is what I mean. It's 2023, and they're just now doing it in Nevada. And everyone's like, yeah, this is fucking great. Like, guys, like, I mean, are you trained? I mean, what level of, like, accomplishment has to happen before it's so low to get any, like, praise out of institutions, apparently, in this industry? So some public pressure matters. But, guys, you just have to realize, did you see this beef that's growing between the Association of Boxing Commissions in Colorado? Colorado is using the one rule set. And the Association of Boxing Commissions is going after them um, because they say it's inherently dangerous. The evidence that they put together in this letter that they wrote to them is like almost entirely theoretical ideas about how things should go. Not an actual review of what the safety data is on some of this stuff. More to the point, guys, why is it important for Colorado to have a different, by the way, Colorado says if you still want to use the unified rules, you can, but if a promoter wants to use this one rule set, they can do that too. Why is that important? Here's why. If every promoter has to obey the same rules about how MMA fights are judged or what kinds of strikes are allowed, certainly we would want to make sure that we have good reason to allow um, any kind of changes from what we're accustomed to, right? We don't want to do this recklessly, but if every promoter has to use the same rules, it favors the incumbent. If, if every promoter has to have the same rules, and I'm not just talking about downed opponent versus not, I mean, like, again, the one scoring system, the knees to the head of a grounded opponent, all kinds of stuff, then any other competitor can't rule differentiate as a way to market themselves. They can just say, hey, we're the same shit you're used to except a different, a lighter, a diet version of it. Guys, it's important for the fucking industry. It's important for the industry that other promoters who have a different conception of things get have something that is still comparably safe can do this. And I know what folks are going to say, how are knees to the head of a grounded opponent safe? Well, guys... The promoter, excuse me, the commissioner in Colorado looked at over a thousand, I think nearly two thousand, something like maybe maybe it's like fifteen hundred, some absurd amount of bouts. Do you know how many were the, these kinds of strikes were even used? It was like one point four percent, and even then, it was distributed amongst the lower weight classes, not the heavier ones. And in none of these cases was there any kind of demonstrable way which we were. It was demonstrated that this was like some kind of, you know, um, nuclear bomb going off, like truly threatening action dude cyborg got his fucking skull broken by michael venom page from a knee that is completely legal someone moving into a strike and then the other person moving into it right and they meet in the middle these are devastating strikes and to me it's like they put this theoretical shit out here dude they're doing the work of the fucking incumbent the, the association of boxing commissions going after colorado for this we're just not gonna let other promoters um challenge the incumbent that's what the commission i mean they have this idea that it's all rooted in safety i mean please get the fuck out of here i'm an adult i mean that these stop but what what's really happening is no 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 you can't compete on 
um, whatever comparative advantage you might have, because I'm just going to tell you the one rule set is better. It's better. You can't run on that. No, no, no. You got to run on the race the way we tell you to. I mean, who is that good for? It's good for UFC. Is it good for one? Is it good for you? Is it good for the fighters? I don't think it is. But it's definitely good for the incumbent. It's great for the incumbent. Perfect for them. All right. Someone's asking favorite album by the Pogues. Oof. Good Lord. I don't even know. Um, okay. I mean, I'm hardly qualified to give a great answer on this, so I'll touch it a little bit. Luke, obviously not all black belts are created equally, but that's true of any belt. Not all blue belts are the same. Not all purple belts are the same. Not all brown belts are the same. Guys, let me tell you something here very quickly. Even with the same instructor in the same gym, not all of the blue belts that he or she hands out are the same. Not all of the purple belts that they hand out to the same gym and the same people in the same gym, not all of those are equivalent. Not all of the browns, not all of the blacks. Not all of the belts that they hand out even inside the same gym are the same. There's massive variance. There are certain kinds of core competencies, general guidelines people are looking for. But you can have someone in your gym who is a you know a, a 35-year-old man who's been training for three years, probably is due for a blue belt. You could have another guy, 18-year-old kid, who's just fucking housing everybody in you know six months. Somebody who was a wrestler, but also just, you know, just a brilliant natural aptitude for jujitsu, and they can go on to compete in the blue belt world championships and win it. These their blue belts would not be equivalent. They're not equivalent, and they train in the same gym. This is a very common thing. It's not at all unheard of. So you're asking about black belts. Who do you th- why do you think that is? And who would you say are some of the best to receive a black belt under? Um any competent and fair and good judge of character as well as ability. I don't I don't really know who I would name as people. Um, you know, people I know and trust, Seth Smith of Upstream BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. I'd know and trust him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, Ryan Hall, 50-50. I'd know and trust him. He's great. Um, the guy who I trained under for a long time, who was a Pedro Sauer black belt, Nakapon, he's great. Um, you know, you can go to a lot of folks. Um, the guy who in DC, he, uh, he runs Estilo BJJ, uh, Venezuelan dude. Oh, God, what the fuck? I mean, my, my brain doesn't work right anymore, but, uh, yeah, these are all, you know, he's, I think he's a Yamasaki black belt. Like, you know, there's lots of great guys, but the reason why they're different is because people are having different martial arts journeys. Some people learn quicker than others. Some people, have different lives inside of the martial arts journey, like their competition every weekend. Um, some people are younger. Some people are older. Everyone is kind of approaching these milestones in their own way. And that sounds like, well, then it sounds like there's no universal standard. Yeah, I mean, there are some things about positioning, balance, having a certain array of submissions you can go to, showing competency in them, showing competency in chaining attacks together. And like, you know, you can find ways to graduate it up the up the food chain, so to speak. But I'm just telling you right now, I've seen it in the gym a million times. Your instructor handing out belts, you can he can give a blue belt to this person and that person the same day. It doesn't mean the same thing. A purple, purple, brown, brown, black, black. Now, again, if you're getting to the black belt stage, there is a real level of mastery that I think, you know, 
has to be achieved. Okay, fair enough. But even then, like there are black belts who don't really compete all that much and they reach the rank of black belt. And then there are guys who get black belt in like four years, like Mike Fowler, you know, um, are there black belts equivalent? No, no. Is the black belt that Gary Tonin has the same as the black belt that the guy in, you know, I'll make up a place Roanoke, Virginia has no, they're not equivalent they're, They couldn't possibly be. They're on different journeys. One is using it for mastery and performance in the sports side of it. Another one is doing self-defense, you know, personal work. And again, a level of competency at each of those levels has to be demonstrated, but they can mean vastly, vastly different things. They are not the same at all. I am so glad you asked this question. Luke, with performances from Strickland and JDM recently, how important going forward for fighters is a defense-oriented game? Fucking great question. And is it a fight style with a high guard as effective against wrestlers as it is against strikers, such as Holland and Izzy? Well, you know, never say never. Like, these people were like, well, it can work against this one and it can't work against that one. You know, you'll make a lot of the mistakes I've made, so I don't recommend saying that. But this is such a great question. It's been on my mind, this kind of idea, a lot, and I think you are absolutely onto something. So with that in mind, let me say this. I absolutely think you're going to start seeing more of this. There are a couple of tensions at play. MMA is only really scored on offense. Defense inherently in the rules is written as its own reward, at least in the unified rules. By the way, on the one championship rules, Takedown defense is positively, affirmatively scored. In the unified rules, takedown defense is like, what's the benefit of defending a takedown? You defended the takedown. Like, you're not on the ground. But other than that, they're not going to assign any value. Well, in the one system, they do. I actually think that this encourages um, a lot more interesting action. But back to the central point. So you're always going to have a sport, and especially where defense is hard. Like, you can't cover with a big glove, right? It's much harder to do that. There are so many weapons. You can wrestle, you can kick, you can jump, you can do so many, you can spin, you can do so many different things. In any kind of sport like that, offense is going to be at the premium, the premium end of things, and it's always going to lead. But the problem is if you, like, if if your focus on the offensive tools is too, how do we say this, is, is too, um, there are a lot of MMA fighters who spend way too much time working on their offense and not nearly as much on their defense. And it's wide fucking spread. And it's partly the way that they train. Um, most people train to learn offense first and then defense after that. They don't, they don't make it as much of a premium uh, because offense can, it's, it's what's scored and it's just inherently what you want. Like what you want is I want to learn how to uppercut someone more than I want to learn good footwork to circle out and pivot out and all that kind of stuff whatever it may be, or where to hold my hands exactly right. They don't want to work on those kinds of things. The better coaches now weave everything together as they teach offense, getting into good position to throw a leg kick, getting out of position, right? But I think the future, I'm telling you, at least the next wave, you're going to see a little bit more of the Sean Strickland and JDM types, guys who have good, strong, tight defense, whatever method they pick, because JDM's method is very different than Sean Strickland's, but the result ends up being that people can't really get their offense going in the striking department because there's just a brick wall in front of them. It gets shut down constantly, and then they're very good about picking times at which to go, striking with them, getting different openings, you name it. 
Yes. I think the better strikers, the next wave of better strikers, they're going to be guys who can do, you know, insane damage. But I really believe that there's going to be a wave of either strikers or a wave of guys who have in the striking part of their game stout defense and they're going to build around a strong stout defense with effective offense but a little bit more apportioned than it once was mma has just been wild offense really from day one and now you're not just seeing strategy but you're seeing defense move into a place i mean you just need it and mma you need to have for long-term success saint pierre solved this problem with wrestling his striking defense got better, but it wasn't great, right? What really kept him out of trouble was he would just take people down and then control them. That was his way of reducing chaos. That was his way of taking the variables he couldn't control and then pulling them um, out of the variables that were affecting the fight. That's how he did it. Pretty impressive. Um, so yes, I absolutely believe this is the future of, you're going to see much more of this, much more. And again, you already saw it on this card, Kyle Nelson, right? He had a great, he did a great job with that. Um, did you listen to the JRE with Kurt Angle? I saw something on TikTok about him eating like fuck tons of prescription drugs, um, and pain pills. Like I was alarmed at how much he was having. Uh, last one on this, we'll get to some of the paid questions here. Question on music. What your What's your take on separating art from an artist? I've been listening to a bunch of Vinnie Paz and really like his song End of Days, but I'm not a fan of the messaging. Yeah, you, good question. Love to hear you talk about it. Also, get ready for them rough DC winters, my guy. Dude, I've been living in DC for almost 30 years. I'm not uh, unaccustomed to the, to the winters. But okay, they're not as bad as they are in Philly anyway. Um, he has recanted most of that message in the last album. I forget which song it was. Was it Manufactured Consent? No. Um, maybe it's that one. I, I forget what, which one it was. On the last album, he basically recanted because there's he had that dude. What's his name? David Icky, who's just a complete loon, and um, I think that's his name. But um, he recants a lot of that stuff where it was just you know skeletons on the moon and um, Aleister Crowley and all that stuff. I think he walks. Now I, I can't speak for Vinny, um, but I think he walks certainly the more controversial elements of that back. You know, being being. Um, Skeptical of power, I think, is very justified in our current age. But I understand your point. Uh, I would just say keep up with the more modern part of the collection, and he walks a lot of that back. All right. Um, I don't know what to do about the Craig Jones thing. I guess I'm going to have to figure that out at a different time. But we can get to any of the paid questions that we have here, if that's all right. Um, let's see. All right. Let's do the, oh, here's the private chat. No audio. Weird. Weird. All right. Let's get to uh, what we got here. All right. And again, if you don't want to contribute, you don't have to. And if you are a subscriber, then you can just do it on the top tier for free. Here we go. So Pereira beat Izzy and beat two other fighters who beat Izzy, Strickland, and Blahovich. Now, after beating three former and current middleweight and light heavyweight champions, he's on the cusp of light heavyweight gold. Quite the legacy. One of the most remarkable runs to a second, to, to one title I've ever seen, much less two. God bless him, dude. I love his story. I don't know if it's going to work for him, but I kind of hope that it does. He's got one of the most interesting stories. You were talking about speed running glory in MMA, the way he's done it. Good for him, dude. 
Good for him. And he did it in another sport to build up his name and his stature. He delivered when it was time to deliver. God bless him, man. That was great. It's fucking great. All right. I have noticed whenever uh, Helwani angers the MMA fan base, I see a lot of either dog whistling or blatant anti-Semitic comments towards him. Any thoughts? Yeah, dude. The people in MMA have retrograde ideas about gays, about minorities, about Jews, about all kinds of people. Like the, the like the complete. I mean, <laughs> yes. Like I cannot overstate to you how retrograde and mainstreamed retrograde the ideas are every day i wake up i saw some influencer what the fuck was his name he wasn't an mma guy but um what the fuck was his name these guys some dude um i don't know the fucking name of these jabronis but he was hitting a heavy bag and he was like would you rather your kid go to a gay pride parade or the gym and it's like he hit the heavy bag like the biggest fucking wimp you'd ever seen in your life and it's like dude you're you're not the fucking guardians of masculinity bro not you mm -mm. not you you're not that guy you're, what's that what's that dude you're not that guy pal you're not that guy you're not that guy um i'm not saying i'm the guy either i'm not but i don't pretend to be right i don't pretend to be some like i'm the guardian of masculinity like these anti-gay attitudes like who the fuck are you man not just that guy, like anybody. Like in this, I have so so many people with ideas straight out of 1987. It's like we really have to argue over this fucking shit again. I lived through us arguing over this. They like these are stupid ideas, but um, yeah, this is a place full of 100 percent. Not 100 percent. That's not quite true. What I mean is, I would never ever tell someone. Um, you should check out the ideas that get circulated in MMA if you want to have a better understanding of what um, educated, informed, and enlightened ideas look like. I would never say that. I would never say that. Favorite dime bag solo? Um, probably the one on Cemetery Gates. Also, any Colombian metal bands you'd discover that you'd recommend? No, my wife would be better about that, but I'm not. They're, um, I don't know if they're Colombian, but they're Latino. Um, Brujeria, 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 Brujeria. Um, those fuckers are powerful. Best of luck to the commanders playing my bills this Sunday. If the game goes forward, it's supposed to rain like tropical storm. Love the show in the live chat. Best regards to you. Yeah, thanks, bro. I appreciate it. Let's hope. Let's hope the game goes off. Luke, what's the logic behind powerlifters' physiques? Why not do why do Lasha and other heavyweight guys? Lasha's not a powerlifter. And other heavyweight guys carry that much fat. Seems like it would be a burden. Guys, being lean just means you didn't eat enough. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're stronger. Like it's not like okay, guys, like a Mike O'Hearn physique, you know, it's a nice physique. I mean, I'm not saying he's not jacked. He's fucking jacked. I mean, he's jacked. But, like, it just looks nicer. It's not in any way more functional at all. Like, like to be maximally strong. Go look at Martin's Leitzis. Um, Go look at him. That's what a super strong guy looks like. Or Tom uh, um, uh, Stoltzman. Uh, or um, Eddie, Her Eddie uh, not Eddie Hearn, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Eddie Hall, Brian Shaw, any of these guys. Why do they carry a lot of belly fat like partly there's a they have to be of a certain kind of size in order to be like 
maximally getting to these thresholds that they're getting to. But like people think if I if I do hypertrophic lifting, which is designed just to grow the muscle, which has some strength components, but is not designed around maximizing strength. And then I have a diet that enables me to cut some of that fat off. I look more athletic. Am I actually stronger? You're not in any way stronger. Like that's not how, if you're lifting for maximal strength, which by the way is not what Lasha does, but if you're lifting for maximal strength, you're lifting in a very different kind. You're not lifting for hypertrophy. You're lifting for, again, whatever the maximum strength is around whatever movement or lift you're going for. First of all, power lifters, squat, bench, and deadlift, weight lifters, snatch, and clean and jerk. And the snatch and clean and jerk are very difficult motions to learn and very, very technical to learn. And Lasha was a guy who has been plucked from a young age, uh, given some of his gifts, um, and you know, trained under the Georgian national system to be able to look the way he looks they could give you better uh, um, um, all the heavyweight lifters men and women look at them like you just cannot be small and lift weights like that you cannot it doesn't work some of the guys like the chinese lifters who are, are smaller are jacked like the, when i say smaller i mean the smaller weight classes some of those guys are absurdly jacked most people think they're on peds there's a good reason to believe that china's program has been caught and or punished any number of times for that again a state-sponsored program so you know do your do your uh make whatever assessments of that that you would prefer but guys visible abs does not mean you are strong <laughs> doesn't mean that at all it means you're hungry luke your wife's uh you said your wife loves opus that's right she does Fantastic music choice. As a fellow fan, I would like to ask, do you know her favorite song or album? Ooh. Album, I don't know. Some of her songs. Um, let me see something. I could tell you. Oof. Oh, Face of Melinda is one of her favorites. For sure. Face of Melinda. Um, I'm not sure about some of the other ones, but the Face of Melinda is a big one for her. Yeah. Superlike versus Rotten tomorrow morning on one. You watching? Um, didn't that fight get all fucked up? Superlike missed weight. Now it's three rounds non-title. Maybe. What will be the X factor in the Yuri Alex matchup? Both have flatline power, but Alex can be more dialed in on his striking. I mean, dude, Yuri is so out of his mind, bonkers, risk taking. I mean, you name it. I, uh, I, I, listen, he's like a, a much wilder version of even Justin Gaethje 1.0. He, with that style, he's going to beat a lot of guys. And with that style, he's going to get beaten. Um, I really don't know what to expect with his time off, what the injury did to him. Has he cleaned up his game? I suspect, you know, everyone, oh, it's like, if it's a kickboxing bout, Alex will win, probably, but it's not. It's an MMA bout, and even then, if they're just doing striking, there's still some big differences with the space and how it's employed. I hesitate to make a lot of proclamations about that, at least until I've had a chance to do some, some more tape study. But yeah, the X factor, the X factor is going to be, um, I think, maybe Alex's chin at 205, which we didn't really get a full test of in the last fight. Do you think coaches like Eric Nixick, who come from NFL, NBA, MLB backgrounds, um, does he come from an NFL, NBA, MLB background, bring new coaching dynamics versus regular combat sports coaches? I think the difference is that Eric 
his dad was a defensive coordinator. I don't know at the NFL level or not, but they take tape study seriously. They take homework seriously. They take that there are knowable things you can plan and work on and what are the best practices and what are other teams doing. They just seem to be asking all the right questions and have uh, um, a set of work habits that focus a lot on collectible, knowable data. And a lot of these other teams are like, yeah, you know, we practiced and, you know, they they have the, these weird uh, ideas about being in balance and harmony and, you know, I don't do a lot of tape study. Like these guys do a fuck ton, relentless. And I mean, in the NFL, you can get guys who like are offensive coordinators or like work with offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators who've never played a snap in the NFL like who's the coach of the Miami uh Dolphins what's his name I forget he's 32 that guy didn't play a single fucking down in the NFL he played at Yale he played at Yale and he is again he has an offensive and defensive coordinator but he's able to like break down film in expert detail like even Deion Sanders was like marveling at the analytical ability of Nick Saban and some other things as well like Nick Saban wasn't the player that Deion Sanders was so, like, I don't think folks understand a lot of this stuff. If if somebody who never played can learn some of these realities about football based on it's more than tape watching, but tape watching can be a really big component. What what can tape watching do for you if you already know how to fight? It, you can do a fuck ton. And again, it's more than that. It's some of the ideas about where the game is headed, leaning into them, right? All that kind of stuff. But they take the good the good processes from other sports and then just port them over and the results speak for themselves. There we go. Green go. That's me. I'm a gringo. Good job. All right. Are we letting the 10, eight Mara competitive fight? That wasn't a 10, eight, the right fighter won, in my opinion. I mean, no one won at any rate gap with respect to Val and the others has narrowed. Yes. It was a wonderful fight. It was a fantastic fight, but you know, if the reality is, that the commission believes the 10-8 was wrong. I mean, they should overturn the result as far as I'm concerned. They won't, but they should. After your recent train travel fiasco, how would you rate Pete Buttigieg's run as Secretary of Transportation? He's been terrible. Thanks for your hard work, you goofy goober. Yeah, he's better now, but he's been terrible up to this point. I mean, especially with the airlines. Was it early part of the summer and the disaster of delays? And he was so late to the party in addressing it. Like, people just, what the fuck does he know about transportation? They put him in that slot, you know, because he's a party loyalist and he has ambitions to stay at the highest level of government. I don't think he's a stupid guy. I think he's a very bright guy. I don't think that's really in question, but um, he's not been great. He's not been great, you know. Why not invite a female fighter to host part of the show with you and BC once in a while, okay? All major MMA shows are men-only hosted, same for pay-per-view previews. Can't you try having Aaron Blanchfield, some non-obvious name, on one of these days? Yeah, I would love to. There's not many in the New York City area. Um, we would love to. I mean, the reality is, like, you know, it's amazing. There's a lot of fighters who have their YouTube channels, and those are all guys who or ladies who are pretty good on camera. Um, but it's not a huge number of them. And then a lot of the other fighters aren't necessarily like you see, you see like Shannon Sharp and Richard Sherman and like all these other ex athletes who are really good on the mic. Um, but the UFC snatches up most of them and it makes it hard to 
you know, like for example, I could get Michael Chiesa on, but you're asking for a woman. Like, um, I've had Laura Senko on a lot, but now she has like bigger fish to fry. Dude, I had Laura Senko on my show when I was on Sirius XM literally every week. Every week I had her on. There's just not many people who can do what she can do who also live in the New York City area. So don't get me wrong, but this is what I mean. It's like, like why are there so many crazy-ass ideas floating around MMA, either anti-Semitic or just insane? It's just the same demo. It's just it's just young dudes. That's all it ever is. So you just don't have a wide population of other voices to hear from. Full Metal Pants became a member. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. Or lady. I don't know. Chael got so offended when uh, Drickus Duplessis called him out, but he was okay clowning on him for weeks and spinning a pro UFC tale. Why talk? I didn't see this. Was this on his show? Where was this? I didn't see this. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know. Yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Without seeing it, I'd be, I just can't comment. Luke, Prime McGregor versus Gaethje. Prime McGregor. Prime McGregor. Yeah. Prime McGregor was quite good. Do you think the UFC will change the color of the octagon canvas for 300? Remember the piss yellow canvas at UFC 200? I think they might try, but they're not going to go back to the yellow. I didn't hate the yellow. Everyone fucking hated the yellow. I didn't hate the yellow, but people did. People did. Um, oh, here we go. iPhone users still can't join the channel. Needs to be fixed. Okay, Othello. Make a note. Uh, we'll look into the iPhone issue. I didn't know there was one, but we'll look into it. There you go. Dear Mr. Thomas, uh, no question. I just want to thank you for your content. Uh, has helped me get through a difficult time. I'm glad I could help. Get your daughter a nice gift. 500 Ron equals a... Oh, shit. Well, dude, that's extremely generous of you. Thank you. I will tell, I will tell Tuki that um, someone hooked her up. That's great, dude. Thank you so much. That's very nice of you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. All right, at Othman. Hello, Luke. You often talk about your struggles with alcohol after your mom passed. Were you a functioning alcoholic, or did it take you to getting your shit together? I mean, the reality is on the functioning thing, I don't know what the data shows. My view on that is you can be functioning for a really long time, but then the problems begin to accumulate, and then the drinking hits more acute phases. So you can have long stretches. When I say long stretches, I mean years. Where, yes, you can be one. So I did have long stretches where I was one. But again, as I indicated earlier, you can also have these like, you know, one problem begins to pile up and pile up. And then the drinking you were moderating to some degree, it goes up a little bit. And then the more problems, then it goes up a little bit. And some unforeseen event happens. And then you go into a spiral. Like when you're a functioning alcoholic, people think you're in control. No, you're on the verge of being out of control. That's how I that's how I see it again. I'm not, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what the data shows, but my lived experience, to what extent that is worth anything, is yeah, you can do it for a while. It's actually not something you can do. Um, you know, oh, I'm just a functioning alcoholic for 20 years. No. Within that 10 year to 20 year time span, you will encounter big problems. Yeah. Bi-monthly attempt to hear what Rogan said to you after the podcast. I was thinking about that today. I was thinking about that today. Yeah, that was curtains for me. I think it was curtains for me. Didn't think of it at the time. Didn't think much about it at all at the time. Now I'm like, oh, right. It's curtains for me. I could be wrong. 
I don't think so, though. I texted him not too long ago. He didn't respond. So that seemed to me like this might be it, you know. I don't think he's mad at me or anything. He still likes on occasion some of my Instagram posts, but he used to text me a lot. And now I didn't even get a response. So I think, yeah, I think that ship sailed. But, you know, I'm not mad at him. He's got to live his life. I mean, there's people making a million hours of demands on his life. And he already had me on once. I I would just be an asshole to complain. I'm not going to complain. But, uh, yeah, I think that ship has sailed. All right. Is the Association of Boxing Commissions talking out of their ass with their commitments about comments, excuse me, about Colorado and knees to the ground and opponent? Do I need to be concerned about Colorado changing the rules? We need to be very vigilant and careful about any rule change or different way of looking at it with if safety is still going to be a premium. But my view, and you should do independent, you should read their letter. I think uh I think um Eric McGracken posted it at combatsportslaw.com. You should have an independent view. You should um, you should read what they wrote. What I took from it was they were making a grand series of assumptions that really may or may not apply to the real world at all. And I don't mean to dismiss their concerns, but the fact that MMA under their watch became a monopolized industry and they're trying to preserve the incumbents' comparative advantages makes me deeply suspicious of either their judgment or their motivations or both. Someone says, can't wait for the day Dana breaks actual news. Like, we get it. You made some fights, but could you? Well, I mean, you know. Again, I don't think that waiting on generosity from any promoter, from any promoter, unless they've, like, competing with their generosity, I just don't think as a boxing or MMA is, you know, that train's not showing up, you know, how do coaches get paid besides 10% of purse, like Eric Nixick being head coach of extreme couture do team coaches get salary or something like that. Every gym is going to have a different operation. Some of the guys have to kind of run the gym, um, at like the actual gym. Like they have to be in charge of scheduling kids classes and who's manning the front desk and, and whatnot. And other guys are just like coaches of the athlete programs. So they're very, very different. So it would really just be how the gym structure, like what job responsibilities do they have? Um, and are they a part of just the athlete program? Do they actually run the brick and mortar institution? That's how they get paid. Shouts to Adam Cole. Thank you, my, my G. I appreciate it. Shouts to Captain. I appreciate it. Let's see what we got here. Seferino DeCaney says, with more fighters decorating their belts like uh, Alexa Grasso, Yair, and Sean Strickland with duct tape, should we have a special belt colors for cultures? I don't want to run this thing into the ground, but the WBC has done this in boxing. They did it, I think, back in 2017, 2019. Um, and so this is kind of like a continuation of this. So, like, you know, it felt like, hey, the Mexicans were the first to do this with the WBC. Um, we're kind of keeping that tradition alive in the MMA way. It was beautiful. I, w- I just don't want to run it into the ground. Um, but I could I see a case for more commemorative belts under the right circumstance in the future? Absolutely. But let's just not take a good thing and then keep doing more of it and then lose whatever value that it once had. I, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, updates on the Bellator PFL merger, inside info. I don't have any more than what's already out there. I've heard that it's very, very close to being done, if not already done. Uh, I'm not sure what's holding up the announcement. Um, some things I've heard are that uh, actually, I, I I can't corroborate that, so I shouldn't say that. But I've I've definitely heard from people very much in the know that um, 
it, it's it's almost done if not done already um but guys oh my lord i said this on yesterday's mk i mean you just got to be kidding me guys if anyone from pfl is watching please do not keep the brands separate I, again there might be some reason why they want to do that I doubt it's any kind of antitrust concern, but maybe that's something. There might be some kind of monetization scheme where, I don't mean scheme like illegal, I mean like an arrangement where by having them on distinct entities, they're able to make more in television rights media fees. I don't I don't know if that's in play, then I can understand it. But if that's not in play, it is a fucking huge mistake to keep the brand separate. Guys, you're buying a brand because the people who had it are selling it. I don't mean that to say it in a pejorative way. I'm just simply re remarking if the brand was stronger, I don't think they would be necessarily in that position. But that doesn't, of course, mean that there's not value. There is, I think, tremendous value in buying Bellator. It's just not for the, the name and the IP. It's for, in my judgment, it's for that incredible roster that they have, which I think would add a significant uh, am amount of quality to what PFL wants to do. Um, there's the library, and you know, there's maybe a few other things I'm not really thinking of. There could be some great staff that should be retained. You know, you name it. But like the Bellator brand itself, um, are they are they under the impression that there are a, a huge number of MMA fans that have a sentimental attachment to it? I'm sure there are some, but to me, that wouldn't be the reason to do the separate divisions. In fact, I think that would get in the way. PFL has some good things about it, but can't make a footprint. Bellator is being sold. Like obviously, something is 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 ailing both organizations. But if you put them together, you can solve a lot of different problems. You can actually do something meaningful. And I also think they need to change their tournament format system. You can actually do something pretty valuable in that. Keeping them separate, it's like, dude, the reason it's being sold, like it. it you're going to buy something that you could use to solve existing problems that PFL has and you're just not gonna? What on earth would be the purpose of that? PFL needs what Bellator has, not as a separate entity, as one to um, assuage some of the, the issues. I, I cannot make any sense whatsoever of keeping the brand separate unless there's something I just genuinely don't get. Don't get very bad idea i saw okamoto's espn rankings this person writes putrid i like brett sean's at five is he at one yeah i disagree with that. i don't even understand that rankings are now uh not yesterday this isn't merit-based but nepotistic old boys club i don't know if it's nepotism um that's not quite the right word of ne the nepotism would not be an accurate description i i think on the pound for pound list when you're looking at the broad scope of someone's overall career achievements even if one has beaten the other, there can be circumstances where they're still ranked above them. However, for divisional rankings, I don't think you can do that. It's like if we're just talking at middleweight and one guy beat the other guy, you can't. My judgment is you really can't do that and have coherent um, rankings. So if I see Brett when I'm in Vegas next, I'll make fun of him. But uh, I do like him. He's a good guy. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. If you had to pick one MA, what would it be for me? Enshin, the bone breaking brutality, one martial art, the bone breaking brutality of Kyokushin and Sabaki footwork, judo throw. Yeah, probably judo, but judo is so fucking bad for you. <laughs> like, however bad jujitsu is for you, judo is like way worse. It's like way worse. Uh, Luke, your thoughts on Infant Annihilator? I haven't listened to too much of them. They make Cannibal Corpse seem like Sesame Street. Yeah, Gore Guts, too. I've been hearing some of their songs. I've been listening to a little more hip hop recently. 
Terrence writes, would be willing to get on a nutrition program for some of the fighters use and record. Would I be willing to get on? I don't need a fighter's nutrition plan. No. I mean, guys, they're going to live in camp a very monastic lifestyle. I don't, if you want to get on a diet plan, you need a diet plan you can do like the rest of your life. I don't mean diet isn't like restriction. I mean like how you balance what you eat. You need to do that for the rest of your life. And of course, if you know, if you're training for certain things, you can up it or change it or whatever. But like, why would I want to be, I don't, I don't live like a fighter. I don't train like one. I don't ha I don't, I'm not trying to reach a goal of losing weight in the way that they are for the very specific purpose around a certain timeline. I don't have any of that. I don't have, I don't have any desire to do that. No. If Colby can't get a takedown, how does he do poorly? Poorly. I'm not really interested in that fight. I mean, I'm not here to say that Leon's just going to run away with it. Colby might win. But, dude, Leon's takedown defense in the second Usman fight was fucking good. And um, Colby's 36. He's fought once a year the last, like, two, three years. Like, mm, I don't know about that one. The one drawback to Strickland and JDM's defensive approach is that it can lead to close fights and come off as boring to casuals. True. Do you think that this can stop the style from becoming prominent? Nope. Uh, if it's a valuable style that yields very positive results, you will see more of it. Of course, you'll see people who like don't want to do that. You know, the guys who want to be cowboys and stuff, fine. But you'll see, you'll definitely see copycats. Dude, here's what they copycat. What works? What works? Yeah, you'll see copycats. Captain V writes, uh, if we, the fans, get BC to do a cameo shitting on himself, would you air it on MK? Of course. Of course. Happily. Please do. Could you see Colby retiring if he loses to Leon? He's had too many chances at the title, and his resume in retrospect is terrible. I think he's probably going to try and milk it for all he can with the time he has remaining, so probably not. But if he gets, like, viciously KO'd, it would be hard to know where he goes from there, you know? He's not going to get a rematch. Luke, how would you feel about the decision if it was a draw because of a 10-10 fourth round? It's not a 10-10 fourth round. Oh, a uh, fourth round. Um, I'd live with it. I'd live with it. I don't agree, but I could live with that. Sure, I could live with that. For your money, what is the most uh, electric crowd reaction in UFC history? It has to be UFC 68. I was there and it was loud. My ears were ringing. UFC 68, that was the one where Randy came back, right? I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is the most insane thing I think I've ever seen. You know, I've seen some pretty crazy ones. Dude, I'll tell you, Spence Crawford in the arena was fucking bananas too. After he dropped him the first time, everyone in the arena was like, oh shit. Like, I mean, it was a, it was crazy. Yeah. All right. Craig, a new member. Shouts to Craig. Thank you, my G. Who has a better Philly shell, Dustin or Sean? Sean's is more defensively valuable. I can say that. How does Pereira create damage with his leg kicks, considering he kicks with the inside of his shin? Um, there's still a shin bone rubbing on it. It's just not turned over. But it, there, you can... He still, he kind of, the angle at which he throws it and the side of the bone still interacts with it. I mean, it gets the job done. Mocracy writes, what do you think of Carlos Olberg's call out of Reyes? Not especially inspired, but 
smart. How do you see that fight going? Um, Holberg's been on a tear. What would it take for MK to cover a power slap event? Dude, I mean, well, that's a good question. What would it take for me to cover a power slap event? I mean, could I cover it however I wanted? Like, I could still be shitty about it. Probably, you know, 20 to 50 grand. Something like that. And I could, and on the condition, I could still be awful about it if I wanted to. <laughs> that, that is what I would do. Um, yeah. Yeah, in any case. Uh, getting back to the call out. It wasn't a very inspired call out. You know, he was, I think he was picking on a guy with a name that he thought he could beat. Um, and you know, partly that's just rational decision-making, but the, the trick to, is to find a name that the fans really want to see you fight. Maybe they want to see him fight Dominic Reyes. I don't know. I didn't get that sense in the immediate aftermath. Um, they want to see him fight someone I think that they feel like is not on a big time losing streak and uh, as a danger to him. So, you know, Olberg is probably right that if he got that fight and won, that beating Reyes has some name value still attached to it, but, um, it just didn't get the fans going in the right direction. Uh, as no one won, what does overturning mean in your view? So it was a draw, split draw. Overturning it means you would turn it in. You would, uh, you would, you could correct the fact that it should have been a 10-9 and then give the fight to Valentina. You don't have to do it that way. You could make it a no contest, but. I don't think that's very satisfying, nor does it get to a restorative part of the justice element that I'm talking about. Uh, Full Metal Pants writes, Luke, what are your thoughts on your homeland of India's assassination? of a I, saw, I read a little bit about this. Seems more like a Connecticut <laughs> thing to me. So from what I understand, there was a prominent Sikh uh, leader in Canada who I believe, I could be wrong about this, I believe he has called for an independent Sikh state. Um, not in Canada, but... Um, I believe in parts of India and Justin Trudeau made some accusations that his death was, had direct links to, uh, Modi's, uh, Narendra Modi's government. Um, I don't know. I have not read any of the details beyond just the very basic ones. I don't know. It would be fucking shocking if it was true, but also like real scary. Um, some people say, you know, I saw, I've seen other Indians be like, oh, they're glad that guy's dead. I saw that. I saw that on social media. I, I don't know much about the gentleman who died. I don't know much about the circumstances. I read, again, some of the basic headlines. But like, we have, what you have to ask yourself is, did the Indian government assassinate, um, I think he was a Canadian citizen, uh, certainly a Canadian legal resident on Canadian soil? Like, that would be fucking. I mean, even Saudi Arabia tries to get people to, to leave Canada to go to Saudi Arabia so then they can execute them there. <laughs> but uh yeah. Yeah, that's bad. If if that's true. I don't I again, I just haven't had a chance. Guys, that that dissected I did on Canelo and Charlo has eaten up all my life. I had to go through all the details on the Rosario, Harrison 2 and Castaño 2 fights and then um the plant fight for Canelo and uh, some other ones. And it has like eaten up all my time. All right, we're got to get this going here. First ever super chat. What age is Prime Shakira? Ooh. So how old was she in 2002? I would say that. Whatever she was then. I don't know how old she is now, but whatever that was then. All right, last one. This person writes, dude was a terrorist, but I'm an Indian and so biased. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what he was. I don't know. I, 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 he, you might be right. You might be completely out of your mind. I genuinely do not know. Um, I just know what 
basic details I've gleaned from following the story from afar. Um, all right. With that in mind, Othello, send me the results of the poll so that I can share them with you right here. Let me see. Send me those. By the way, here we go. You got them there, dude? Listen to this. Ready? Hey, if you're a UFC fighter gambling on your own fights. That's fucking illegal. Yeah. Yeah, it is, Dana White. It's fucking illegal. You know what I'm saying? Um, all right. I don't know if he can hear me. I'm waiting for these results. Oh, he checked out. Dagger. Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me, guy. All right. We'll get him for next time. I'm not going to belabor the point. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Um, thumbs up on the video. Subscribe. It's free. All that good stuff. Reminder, if you want to support the channel, you can join as a member or not. But if you want to, it's certainly uh, very beneficial and helpful for me. So thank you to everyone who did. I appreciate it very much. This will go up on podcast platforms tonight. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you guys so much for watching. I'm out of here. Until next time, you know what the deal is. Stay frosty. Bye.